Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. We're going to continue with an overview of Mark 1, 1. And if you would, uh, just go ahead and stand to your feet. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You're not going to have to stand for long, I promise. Um, I love when the passages that Billy chooses for the scripture reading actually kind of coincides with some of the themes that we're talking about in scripture, but the Bible's kind of that way, you know, like uh, you'll, you'll find that, that uh, there are these repeated themes over and over, and the more you kind of get a grasp on theology and what the Bible says, you start seeing things everywhere. But Mark 1.1 This is the word of God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. That's what we're doing this morning. That's it. Yeah, yeah. You had to stand for that. She was, she's a little miffed at me there. (laughs) All right. So last week, uh, the first part of the overview of Mark's gospel dealt primarily with the unique internal attributes of Mark's writing style, his composition, his structure. I know it sounds riveting when you're, when you're thinking about it, but when you actually see the composition and how he wrote, you know, repetition, the Mark and sandwiches that we talked about, the questions answered with questions, uh, Jesus asking questions only to be uh, answered back with kind of boastful, arrogant answers, And then he followed that up with a rebuke, and we see that several times through the book of Mark. And it's fascinating how Mark's structure points to the actual meaning of the text and is a testament that God's word is divinely inspired, that there's no way that men could have put their heads together and come up with this, okay? Uh, It was done purposefully and intricately woven together to communicate God's message to them and, of course, the timeless truths to you and I. We can read what Scripture meant then and, and what it specifically meant in their day and time, and then each, each passage of Scripture has timeless truths that apply to our lives today. And this week, as we consider the first uh, verse in light of the overview and sort of an introduction, how does this fit? How does the book of Mark and what's going on right here fit in God's overall plan from Genesis to Revelation from cover to cover in Scripture, okay? So it may be one of those weeks where you're trying to, like, stay focused. And I, again, just like the singing, have no guarantees that everything I'm going to be saying is going to be uh, understandable. But I will do my best, okay? I think I've, I think I've boiled it down to some, to some great points and truths here this morning. So just take notes. I'm not going to do what I did last week because we're not going to be going in a bunch of different directions scripture-wise, but you can make notes, so I won't have to repeat myself as much this week. But I want to begin by focusing primarily on that word right in the center of the text there, gospel, that word gospel. And Mark very clearly states it here that this is the beginning, he says. This is the beginning of the gospel. So is it the beginning of the gospel itself? No, it's not. If you guys have seen American Gospel 2, there are these two guys that are like deconstructing, you know, their faith, which is a very trendy and popular thing to do these days. And, uh, and they were talking about how Jesus was, Jesus was walking around preaching the gospel. How could he preach the gospel? He hadn't even died yet, you know, like, and it's like, well, that's a fundamental misunderstanding or ignorance of what the gospel is. So I'm going to put that out there for you today. It says, Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, primarily his actual coming, his his mission, and how his first coming fits into God's overall redemptive plan. So when he came that first time, he was coming to do redemption's work. That was his purpose when he came the first time. The next time he comes, he's not coming to redeem, he's coming to judge and, and uh, to essentially clean house, okay? So we need to understand that God's plan is unfolding, all right? And we see how this overall plan is unfolding within the gospel of Mark. Uh, that The gospel 
in its most broad sense is this. If, you take, if you're taking notes, the gospel in its most broad sense is this. A holy God reconciling fallen man to himself. A holy God reconciling fallen man to himself. Okay? So throughout history, he's reconciled man unto himself. And we read in scripture in various different ways. But it all boils down to this. It all boils down to this right here. No matter you're on that side of the cross or this side of the cross, repent and believe. Repent and believe and believe in the Messiah. Okay, so throughout history, that's what uh, brought redemption and reconciliation was believing God, repenting and believing God. And the Old Testament saints, they looked ahead into the future and they believed God about this coming Messiah. And they put their faith in God and in so doing, put their faith in the coming Messiah, and therefore, it was counted unto them righteousness. Uh, we look backward to Christ's coming. We see his redemptive plan. We see his, his ministry, his perfect life. We see him take upon himself the wrath of his own father on the cross. And we put our faith, and we believe God, put our faith in Jesus Christ, and it's counted unto us righteousness. He wraps us in his robe of righteousness, okay? So Mark's gospel is the account of those two segments of human history with that, that great dividing line of the cross in human history, right? And, uh, and, but the cross itself is it's just um, in, this collision in dramatic fashion of these things that don't really fit together. For instance, the collision of God's mercy and his wrath took place at the cross. He poured out his wrath that you and I deserved on his own son and yet and yet poured out his mercy toward you and I who, who don't deserve it at all. The beauty of grace on Calvary. And a combination of Christ coming on mission to accomplish, again, that redemptive purpose, redemption's plan, both, listen, as the son of God and the son of man. So he served in two offices when he was here in his ministry. He was the son of God and the son of man. He was uh, the sovereign creator, and he was the last Adam, okay? And that's, that's really, really important to grasp. And when we talk about God's overall redemptive plan and consider his mission, both as God, because only God could absorb, only God could absorb the wrath of his father, the eternal wrath of his father, do you understand? But only man could do man's side of living a perfect, sinless life and offering himself as a ransom. So he had to do both. And we have to consider two things when we're considering that dividing line. We have to consider what is called protology, which is really the study of the beginning of time, and eschatology, maybe on from your perspective I should do it this way, like the beginning as a protology in the beginning of time and eschatology, which is the end of time, the study of the end of time. And there are two primary ways I want to consider this. First by looking at the beginning, uh, and we obviously get that account from the book of Genesis, and you guys are familiar with that, and we don't need to get in all the details, but I am going to lay out, if you will, a cast of characters, and, and please afford me that to be able to use that term. If we were, you read on, you know, about who's casted, casting in a TV show or a movie, well, at the beginning of time, beginning of time who were the players? Who was the cast? Who are the, the beings involved, okay? Because that's going to make a big difference as we go through God's word. Um, what was the setting? What was the setting of, of, of the unfolding of the beginning? Well, first, heaven and earth. Scripture tells us very clearly there were two dimensions, and they were unfolding on the same timeline. And God created time for the purpose of his redemptive plan. And the way I break it down in my brain is creation, corruption, redemption, restoration. And we're still in the redemption stage. We're, we haven't yet reached the restoration stage when he returns to make all things new. So we can't have an over-realized eschatology, which means we reach into the future and we grab all these promises of eternity and we try to drag them into the now. You do that, you, you mess your theology up, okay? You'll, you'll, you'll become a prosperity preacher or something like that. And, and uh, we don't want to do that. Okay. So we had heaven and earth, two dimensions unfolding on the same timeline, events playing out together 
on the same stage, if you will, but the, the seen and the unseen. So understand, these are two realms that even today exist, the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible, the spiritual and the physical. And who was involved? Who was the cast? Okay. Well, there's God, the unique and only eternal uncreated being. And I'm going to challenge you daily to remind yourself that God said, you thought I was just like you, but God is not like us. And we are not like God. He is uncreated. He is infinitely holy. And then on top of that, infinitely holy. And on top of that, infinitely holy. And then just keep saying holy infinitely. And that's how far separated we are from God. Do you get the concept? You have to get that concept. The moment you start humanizing God and making him like us or making us like him somehow by our own means or our own righteousness, again, bad theology uh, happens, okay? So um, you have that triune God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and we're told in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and we know that to be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It was before he took on the flesh of man. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, and you guys, you know, you don't have to write this down. You write down the reference and then throughout the week, take some time to go back and kind of review uh, these passages. But Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created. And this is speaking of Jesus, okay? And this is really interesting because like what, what Billy read this morning in our scripture reading, the three are always intimately uh, together and in perfect harmony in everything they do. So you can say, as this states, Christ was the creator. God's word also tells us God was the creator. God's word also tells us the Holy Spirit it was the power that helped create all things. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always in complete union and harmony, they do all things together. You can't separate one from the other, and that's important to understand again. So Colossians 1.16, for by him, speaking of Jesus in this case, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. So, yes, the heavens, stars and planets and all that, but also, as it states here, visible and invisible. So it's being very clear about the two different dimensions, whether thrones or dominions. So now it's talking about powers. It's talking about these different beings that are on this stage, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. All right. So then we see by this account in Colossians, there were created beings, there were spiritual beings, and there were earthly beings, okay? And the reason I'm laying all this out is because none of this has changed. Those same spiritual beings that were created back then, they exist today. They, they, we're still on the same, like, timeline. We've got time unfolding. We've got the physical realm that you and I deal with, and we think it's reality, but it's not true reality. True reality is eternal. True reality are the things that will last forever and ever and ever. And the spiritual realm is where true reality lies. And for us, this is all like a facade. We have to remind ourselves constantly that this is important. Life is important. The things we're involved in. But it's like I was speaking this morning. Be thou my vision, not just my priority. You're my everything. You're, you matter more than anything else in my life, right? So the spiritual realm. And among the spiritual beings, you have these various rulers, authorities, principalities. We see in Scripture that just to name a few angels, not all the spiritual beings are called angels. You have angels. You have archangels. You have seraphim. You have cherubim. Okay, and that I am means plural. So you would say seraph or cherub. Okay, and no, the cherub's not little Cupid flying around like a little, like a little chubby baby flying around with the... A bow and arrow, okay? That's not a cherub. A cherub, just look it up. It, it's terrifying, okay? Um, but the chief of the created spiritual beings was a being known by a job description, not a name. And, and it was Halel, which means the light bearer, okay? And w you guys know this being as Lucifer, but never in Scripture was Lucifer given the name Lucifer. I want you to know that. Scripturally, he was never given a proper name. He was just the Satan, okay? He was the enemy, the deceiver. Um, and, but, his, but his job description was 
uh, light bearer. And a man named Jerome, who was translating the Bible into the Latin Vulgate, he's the one who read that Hillel, uh, the light bearer, and translated it as Lucifer. And then all of a sudden, this being that the Bible never gives a proper name, all of a sudden has a proper name, Lucifer, and that's what we know him as. So, but that's not even in Scripture. But so we're told in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 13, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 13, it's speaking of this being, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 13, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom. And that, that like kind of calls back what Genesis says about him, that he was more crafty than any beast of the field. That word crafty, this, it's full of wisdom. It's full of, it's cleverness, okay? Um, and that's how this being is pictured. Perfect in beauty. So a beautiful creation. Listen how it says where he was. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So we see that this being was in Eden even before the fall, even before his fall, in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. It goes on to tell us of this being that uh, these precious stones were set in sockets of gold. So imagine this ornate like armor that this being was given and, and every precious jewel was set in sockets of stone and he bore this light. And, and I believe personally it was his, he was created to reflect the beauty of God, to absorb the light of God and reflect his glory the way you and I are supposed to reflect his glory every day in the way we live our lives. Um, and, in, and what was his position and purpose? Well, in Ezekiel 28, 14, it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers, the anointed cherub who covers. And the purpose of the light bearer, again, was to reflect the image and the glory of God and point only to him. And of course, we know what happened in, in scripture. We know that that being got arrogant and puffed up and said, I shall ascend on the Mount of Congregation. I shall be like the Most High. Uh, we can think we can look down on him, but how many times do we think I shall be like the Most High? Anytime we make ourselves like God or God like us, we're doing the same exact thing Satan did. Um, but with him, the Bible says, this unspecified number of those spiritual beings fell as well. And we have that one-third uh, you know, figure in Scripture, but we don't know how much a third is. We don't, it never gives us a number. It's just however many 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000s of these spiritual beings there were. And a third of them fell as well. And we know those to be the forces of darkness, the agents of evil that are still present in our day and hour seeking, um, you know, to destroy us, to get us off track, to deceive us. And these agents of evil, they deceive us by appealing to our fallen nature, our flesh, okay? And so all the things that we want to do, you're not the boss of me, God, or I'm the boss of myself, I'm my own boss. These, these beings know what buttons to push, and they do their best to get us off track, deceive us, lie to us, and destroy us. Now, God also created mankind, Adam and Eve, and they were created in right relationship with God. We see this as Adam and Eve actually had communion with God in the, in the Garden of Eden. And we know that they were deceived by Satan and they fell as well. So we're, we're seeing these players unfold. And the reason I'm talking about the beginning is because this doesn't stop. We still have the same players. When they, fell, uh, when they fell and failed, creation itself fell. And it was thrust into this catastrophic, cataclysmic upheaval, okay, and as a result, what is called historically in human history, the word calamity, this the evil in the world, corruption in the world ensued. Not long after, whatever happened when sin entered into perfect harmony of creation, it broke something and then eventually God then destroys the earth with a flood, okay? And this upheaval arises, and, and, and this world, as beautiful and gorgeous and wonderful as it is, is still a shadow of what it must have looked like shortly after creation. And in contrast, before the fall, 
uh, holy God was in right relationship with man. He provided them with, and this is what's important to understand here. How did God relate to us and what did he provide in the beginning? Well, he provided them with everything they needed to be fruitful and multiply. That was his command. They had an unending supply of food. There was no sin, no sickness, no disease, no sorrow, no pain, no fear, no conflict, no enemy, and no death. That was the reality of life before the fall. But after the fall, they struggled to grow food. Immediately, the earth yielded thorns and thistles. They worked by the sweat of their brow. They dealt with sorrow and pain. They lived in fear of calamities like sickness and disease. And there were hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes and volcanoes and all of these natural disasters, calamity, from the earth itself being broken. And we still deal with all of those things today, don't we? They were constantly falling into deception as their enemies, those fallen spiritual beings, were bent on leading them astray, leading them to their destruction. And the ultimate outcome of the fall is corruption, the problem of evil, suffering of man, and man's vital need, his vital need to be reconciled to a holy God. And in Genesis, we see our sovereign God. So these are the players. We see our sovereign God. We see the chief fallen spiritual being, Satan. We see fallen man, and we see a broken creation groaning to be renewed. That's what we see in the book of Genesis. Now, it's vitally important to note here, God is not, nor has ever been, flying by the seat of his pants, making stuff up as he goes along. That's impossible. If he's an all-knowing God, an omniscient God, he knows everything and knew it before time ever existed, he's ne he never adds a new thought to his being. He's never been less than what he is today, and he's never been more than. He's just infinite and has always been infinite, has always known all things. And again, it refers back to that otherness of God and how we need to understand he's so different from us. And his ultimate purpose has not changed from the beginning. So it wasn't like the Garden of Eden was plan A and, oh man, they messed that up. I guess I better figure out a plan B. That's not how it worked. And we need to understand that. God is not figuring this out as he goes along, okay? It's always been the same plan from the very beginning, from before time itself, from before creation, right? He knew us. He called us by name. And, and that has been... His plan from the beginning, he's always known who his sheep, who his church was going to be. He does everything in this world by divine allowance, two ways, either by divine allowance or his divine decree. I'm God and I will allow this, thus the problem of evil, okay? He knew it was going to happen. Your theology gets real twisted and messed up when you don't understand that an all-knowing God allowed evil to take place. He allowed it. He knew it was going to happen. He allowed it. It's part of his plan. You just have to deal with that. Do you believe God is righteous? Do you believe God is just? Yes. Then let him be God. Don't question God. We're going to find out how he deals with Job in a moment. He, he does everything for his own good pleasure and for his own purposes. And, and as I said, time is unfolding according to his eternal purpose, and we don't get to question that. The end of time is going to be this renewal, this renovation, but even better than it was in the Garden of Eden, because the Garden of Eden was not impervious to evil. When all things are made new, evil is vanquished forever, and we get to live in that reality. A return to what life was like at the beginning of time. A reality at the beginning declares Again, what the reality is going to be like at the end. So as it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. It's a return to what was God had created, but even better in the fact that his church, he indwells his people, which Adam and Eve did not have that luxury. So let me just remind you real quick, write down Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, and you can review this this week. I'm going to read through it real quick, but just so you understand who God is, and how he relates to time and all of this unfolding. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the, the former things long past. Listen how he declares. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Do you see how he's establishing his otherness, his infinite otherness? He says, declaring the end from the beginning. 
That's his all-knowing nature. He knows it all. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's on him and him alone and we don't get to question it, okay? So now you've seen the prologue in, in front of, uh, you guys have seen a prologue in books, right? How many of you guys read books? Uh, some of you guys are avid readers. And you've read prologues and you know what that means. A prologue gives readers important information prior to the body of the book itself that kind of sets the stage for the author's overarching plot, like what he's planning uh, to do with the entirety of the book. And if we were try to pinpoint if we were to try and pinpoint one book of the Bible as a prologue to all of Scripture, uh, many scholars agree that it would be the book of Job. And it's because the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It was written first, okay? It was written even before Genesis, okay? Genesis gives us the account of the beginning, but Job was written prior to the book of Genesis. Uh, Job gives us a glimpse of what life was like not very long after the flood. There are various biblical clues that point to Job being the oldest book, as I said. There's no mention of the Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, the law of Moses. None of that is mentioned. We can estimate that Job lived over the age of 200. Uh, the, uh, the Septuagint states that Job was 240 when he died, okay? And that lifespan, if we look at history, human history, and the lifespan of humans in the Bible, we can kind of pinpoint when that lifespan would have been. And that's an age more comparable to the age of Abraham's great-grandfather. His name was Sarug, which is a great name. You guys looking for baby names? I didn't see that one in the book, but Sarug. Uh, and he lived to be 230, okay? Uh, so, so Job and Sarug, Abraham's great-grandfather, lived about the same period of time. Uh, in Job, we find that there are beasts uh, called behemoth or leviathan, which certainly sound a lot like what you and I would call dinosaurs today. So it's very likely that these, these beasts, these dragon-like creatures, uh, existed not long after the flood, still existed after the flood. And if Job is the prologue to the Bible, we would expect the book to do what prologues are supposed to do, Right? We would expect it to give us an important information prior to the body of Scripture that sets the stage for God's sovereign overarching plan. What do we find in the book of Job? As we said, written even before the book of Genesis, we find all of the same characters in Genesis. We see our sovereign God, our fallen spiritual enemy, Satan. We see fallen man, and we see a broken, groaning creation. All right? And we find sin and sickness and disease and sorrow, pain, fear, and death. And we find the book specifically deals with the problem of man's suffering in this world. Brokenness and corruption of sin. Job has the audacity to question the motives and the plan of the eternal creator of all things, who we know, of course, we saw earlier in Scripture, uh, Jesus Christ is connected with that creation. And Job demands an answer for his suffering. And the Creator responds with a rebuke in Job 38, 1 through 4. Job 38, 1 through 4. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's establishing his otherness, isn't he? Job, you're a mere human. You are ignorant. Why are you questioning Almighty God? Do you see what he's doing there? Words without knowledge. Now, you gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you, Job? You didn't even exist. I'm the eternal one. I'm the creator, the sovereign God. Tell me if you know understanding. So you see how he rebukes him and reminds him, I am God and you are man? That should be the attitude of our heart. As he continues his rebuke, this sovereign, our sovereign God gives the answer to the problem of sin and sorrow and pain and suffering and de death. He actually gives Job the answer. 
God's answer for such profound suffering in the world, the mind-blowing answer to the question of Job is, Job, if you want the answer to the problem of suffering and sin and death and pain, the answer is me, God, the creator. I'm the answer. It all comes back to me. I expose the, the skeletons in my closet or that which you perceive to be the skeletons in my closet. I don't run away from it. I'm the answer to all suffering, sin, and death. I allowed it, and I've got a plan to bring it all to an end, a closing end in which all will be done for my pleasure and my glory and my honor. And yet we get to be benefactors of that in God's eternal plan. When we, in our trials and tribulations, ask, Lord, why do I have to suffer in this way? Why am I going through this, God? Why now? Why these particular circumstances? The answer is the same now as it was then. Where does my hope rest in this life? In the midst of heart-wrenching suffering in this world, in our family, in our, in our everyday lives, from where does my strength come when being tested by the deception and temptation of dark forces in this world? Upon whom do I place my faith when facing calamity and sickness and disease and hunger and catastrophic weather disasters and loss and even death of those that we love so much? My hope, my strength, and my faith is set firmly on the person of Jesus Christ, his finished work, and the promise of eternity with him. Whatever the circumstance, Jesus is the answer. God is always the answer. Now, with all those things in mind, we come to the book of Mark, and in the first line, we're once again presented with this word gospel. John Mark did not coin this word. He did not come up with this term himself. This was a term used and recognized by both Jews and Gentiles in that day and age. The word gospel is euangelion, which is also where we get the word evangelism, by the way, sharing the gospel. And it, in general, the word meant good news or glad tidings, like to just you know, give someone good news in that day and time. But more specifically, the first century Jews knew this word from the Septuagint. Now, I've mentioned that word a few times. I mentioned it last week. The Septuagint was... We all have an English version of the Bible that was translated from Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Well, the Septuagint was the Bible, the Word of God, translated for them in their day and time in uh, Greek so that they could all read it in the common language. And um, significantly, this word is used in reference with the Jews to the ultimate salvation of God's people through the coming of this future messianic king. So again, they looked ahead. And that specific reference carries with it God's people reconciling once again with their sovereign God. And, and all kind of wrapped up in that reconciliation comes the end of fear, the end of sorrow, a final victory over the enemy, and that last enemy to be defeated, as we know from Scripture, is death. That one day death will be no more. In Isaiah chapter 40, 9 through 14, Isaiah 40, 9 through 14. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. There's the word, euangelion. There's the, new, the word gospel. Bearer of the gospel. Raise up your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of the gospel. Raise it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God, behold, Lord Yahweh will come with strength. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So this is speaking, again, you, you see these prophecies about Messiah kind of bound together with him coming the first time as the suffering servant and the second time as the victorious king, the judge. It goes on to speak of God's love and gathering his people together and his sovereignty, similar to the way that we saw the Creator speak to Job in the passage that we just read in that rebuke, reminding us the otherness of God and who He is in the grand scheme of things. In Isaiah 52.7, Isaiah 52.7, I grew up with this, a plaque of this on my wall at home, and I saw it all the time. Isaiah 52.7, we see this word gospel, good news, euangelion, proclaimed and, and by these messengers of hope. And here's what it says. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good news, who proclaims the gospel, who announces peace and proclaims gospel of good tidings, 
who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. He's the ultimate. He's the pinnacle. We don't have to worry about anything. Your God reigns. Over and over, the gospel is this proclamation of the promises of God, reconciling with his people through the coming Messiah. So Mark opens his gospel account and puts it right out there. He calls Jesus Christos, the Christ. And this connects him immediately, connects him immediately, uh, the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. He just puts it out there. And he was stating outright that, hey guys, this Jesus that I'm writing about, he's the one who's been promised. He's the Messiah. He's the one connected to all these Old Testament prophecies. And we, when we consider all this together and we begin to break down Mark's gospel, which clearly states who Jesus is and what he came to do, we find some pretty incredible truths to consider in, the, in this. Truths that take us back to the book of Genesis and back to the Bible's prologue, the book of Job. Okay, And we see the opposite of what we saw in the Garden of Eden. The people in the first century dealt with sorrow and pain and poverty right? And hunger. They succumbed to sickness and disease and natural disasters. They lived in fear of their enemies and of the demonic forces seeking to destroy them. They lived in fear of devastating loss and ultimately death. And these people were suffering and they were suffering the way people did after the fall in the book of Genesis. And they were suffering the way Job suffered with the loss of his family and the sickness and disease and all that in the book of Job. And in the midst of that suffering, of those, that time period in which Christ entered the world, comes the creator of all things. Sovereign God takes on the form of man and steps into his creation. And Jesus the Christ, the God-man, began to do things for those suffering people. And everything he did was a gospel act. Everything he did was a gospel act. It proclaimed truth, the truth of what he came to do and who he was. And I want to show you this. The truth he proclaimed in those gospel acts was clear. It communicated, again, who he was and why he was here. If, his, if in his actions, the creator, the promised Messiah, were to present himself as the answer to the problem of suffering and these suffering people, how might Jesus do that? What would be the most clear and concise way that Jesus would present himself as the answer, the way that he proclaimed himself to be to Job? How might he do that to those suffering people who were fearful of dying in a natural disaster? What could Jesus do to, to communicate this? Well, write this down, Mark 4, 35 through 41. Mark 4, 35 through 41. His disciples and other boats near them were caught in a storm and they all feared that they were going to die. This is calamity. This is the earth groaning. These are the results of fallen creation. And what did Jesus do? He spoke to the storm and he said, peace, be still. And the storm calmed and the waves, the, the water stilled and the fear was gone. Okay. This caused them to ask this very important question. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Maybe, just maybe, there's meaning in that. He presented himself as the creator of all things in the beginning the same way he answered to Job, he is the sovereign master of the wind and the waves. How might Jesus present himself to suffering, poverty-stricken people who have very little to eat, who live their lives daily with children and, and they're trying to decide who gets to eat which days? Okay, well in Mark 6, 33 through 44, Mark 6, 33 through 44, and Mark 8, 1 through 9, Mark 8, 1 through 9, I'll say it one more time. Mark 6, 33 through 44, and Mark 8, 1 through 9. Jesus took fish and bread, and he multiplied it in order to feed thousands of people. And I believe that this happened more than just these two times, the 5,000 and the 4,000. We're only given the high points of all the things Jesus did, remember? The Bible tells us that if, if they were to record all the things that Jesus were to, had done, that there would not be enough room in the world to hold all the books, okay? So we're just getting the high points, but these two occasions, these in the crowd were likely thinking, 
when he fed the 5,000 and multiplied the fish and the bread, they were thinking about quail and manna in the desert, their ancestors in the wilderness. And not only that, but Jesus was presenting himself as the source, the creator of all things in the beginning, when in the garden, mankind had all the food they needed. Remember, they could eat of any tree in the garden. They had sustenance. They had everything they could ever want right there in the garden. So Jesus was pointing back to the garden. I'm the one who gave you the garden, human beings. I gave you the garden. I'm the one, and, and, and keep this in mind, as it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. And I'm the one who will, in the millennial reign, restore the earth and give you everything you need. And I will give you everything that you need in eternity as well. When you read the description of, of what the new Jerusalem and heaven and all that's going to be like. He presented himself as their sustainer and their provider. Well, how might Jesus present himself to the crowds in Mark 5, 1 through 20? Mark 5, 1 through 20. These people who had grown up around this area knew of this, these two insane men running naked among the tombstones, cutting himself with sharp rocks, helpless and hopeless, suffering from demonic possession. How might Jesus present himself? Well, here's how he did it. He presented himself as the sovereign king of kings, the creator of all things, who in the beginning, he was the Lord of all authority, all power, all dominion. He created all authorities, all powers, all dominions. And so those fallen spiritual beings that were possessing that man were under the authority of the king of kings and Lord of lords. And he could say to them, come out and cast them into pigs. And he was exhibiting to everyone around him, I am the Lord of all. Even these demonic Fallen beings have to listen to me. And what did they say to him in other accounts? They ran up to him and they fell down on their face in worship of who they knew to be the creator. They fell down on their face, these fallen beings, and said, Have you come too soon to destroy us? Are you here too early? No, I'm just here to show these folks who I really am. And that's what he was doing in this case. How might Jesus have presented himself to the woman in Mark 5? 24 through 34, Mark 5, 24 through 34, who for 12 years had been dealing with a hemorrhage, a debilitating sickness. So are you guys picking up on the fact that we're dealing with people who are hungry, the lack of food? We're dealing with everything that happened with the fall, all of the fallenness and the things that ensued. And Jesus is one by one walking through this saying, I'm the answer to every one of these problems. Y'all, I'm preaching when I see like spittle flying around. So I'm just glad there's nobody in the front row here. So how would he present himself to this woman who had been dealing with 12 years of this debilitating disease? Well, he presents himself as the creator of all things. In the beginning, the one with the power, look, to rearrange cells and molecules, to look in a body and see something that doesn't belong and say, be healed. And and the, the one who created the stars and the sun and the galaxies and that just ceases whatever that sickness is just ceases to exist in that person's body just think about that for a moment he presented himself as the healer the great physician and the one who will make all things new how might jesus present himself to jairus and his family without hope grieving the loss of his daughter who is lying there dead can you imagine anything worse mom and dad than the loss of your child, than having to deal with that type of sorrow and death. I can't imagine, death is hard anyway, but I cannot imagine the loss of a child. And here is Jairus and his family mourning. And how did Jesus present himself? He presented himself as the creator of all things in the beginning, the author of life itself. He is the resurrection and the life, as he said at Lazarus's raising. Everything that Jesus did pointed back to the reality of life in the garden before sin, before demonic forces existed, before hunger, sorrow, pain, loss, and death. The gospel of Jesus Christ presents the prospect of having all that back again and all things being made right and made new. But not only that, again, everything he did in his ministry pointed to the future reality of his millennial reign as the last Adam, 
the son of David, okay? When once again the earth will be restored in the presence of its creator, as Paul speaks of in Romans 8, 18 through 25. If you want to review that, Romans 8, 18 through 25. The lamb will lay down with the wolf in peace. The toddler, the Bible says, will play in the den of the cobra without danger. It's going to return back the way it was in the Garden of Eden when there was no predator and prey. When you wouldn't have to worry about your children being attacked by wild beasts or being killed by calamity. The earth will again yield a fruitful harvest to the extent that no one will go hungry. And we're talking about the future. We're talking about the, the millennial reign. And the enemy Satan and his dark forces, the Bible tells us, will be cast into a bottomless pit for that thousand-year reign. And so there'll be no demonic influence, just like it was before the flood. I mean, I'm sorry, before the fall. The Messiah in his messianic kingdom will rule and reign, the Bible says, with a rod of iron, which just, which just means it will be swift justice, immediate justice. There will be no outward rebellion during that thousand-year reign until the point in, in time in which God, in his sovereign plan, will release Satan and those demonic forces, the Bible says, to tempt the nations. And once again, at the end of that reign, Human beings will actually rise up. Some will rebel and rise up against Christ who had been reigning on the earth for this period of time under the influence of Satan and those dark forces. And once and for all, he will judge them all with a rod of iron. And when Christ has fulfilled every messianic promise he's made and he has reigned for that thousand years, then the end comes. Then comes the end of time itself. When Christ will make his final and eternal judgments at the white throne judgment, evil will be vanquished and wiped away forevermore. And that is what we have to look forward to. In Revelation 21, 3 through 5. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. I just want to read these words and edify you this morning. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says... Behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. The one who created the heavens and the earth will create a new heaven and earth and a new holy city, as it speaks of in Revelation 21, 23 through 27. Revelation 21, 23 through 27, verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. Christ will be the light. The glory of God will light. And the Bible says there will be no shadow. Not even shadow there. Everything will emanate in the light of God's glory. It, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb of God. And the nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be closed by day. For there will... Be no night there, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing defiled. This is talking about the holy city. Nothing will be defiled, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, his bride, his people, his true love from the foundation of the world. He chose them. As it was in the beginning, so it shall be in the end. And Mark's first statement in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was an all-encompassing statement about who Jesus was and what he came to do, not only the first time, but upon his victorious second coming. This is how Mark's gospel fits into the overarching story of Scripture, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This must have brought such hope to those first century Christians who received this gospel account. So nothing had changed from the time Christ came, was, was murdered, was buried, was resurrected. He ascended to the Father. And some several, a few decades later, here we have the early church who are being severely persecuted 
blamed for all sorts of atrocities. And they were meeting. Look at this room we're in. We've got heat. We've got light. These folks were meeting in catacombs, in, in caves with dead bodies by candlelight. And this book of Mark was, was brought out for the first time, this gospel, and read. And guess what? All of those things that from the beginning, after the beginning when it fell, the death, the sorrow, the pain, the fear, the calamity, the disease, all those things was still in, in action. And these people were hiding for their very lives. The reality of the Messiah who came, who accomplished his redemptive plan, who ascended to the Father and who's coming again, and Mark speaks of this, how that must have given them such hope, even in the darkness of their day, must have filled their hearts with joy. And for you and I, folks, the reality is exactly the same. Those problems have been dealt with in the redemptive work of Christ, but he has yet to make all things new. We need to understand that. This is the proving ground. Life's going to be hard. There's going to be some gut-wrenching moments in your life. You better expect it. You better expect it. Life can come at you and blindside you in a moment and, and, and leave you feeling like you have nothing. I, I, maybe that doesn't sound so encouraging, but let me tell you what is. In light of all those things, in, in, in death and, and cancer and the sorrow that all of that stuff brings and, and sickness and catastrophe, we can hold on to the fact that you and I in Christ are invincible for eternity. You can kill the body, but you can't kill the eternal part of us that will dwell forever with Christ. And that body in his own power, he will raise again to new life and we will live eternally with him. Amen. That's what Mark is preaching in his gospel. And we get to see all of those themes unfold in the, in the book. All, from beginning to end, he is the answer. He is the creator. He's going to deal with Satan. He's going to deal with sickness and disease. He's going to deal with poverty. He's going to deal with hunger. He's preaching the gospel. But the most important thing is I have come to reconcile you to my Father. I'm the answer. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.